something I learned very late in training because it took me so many years to actually train uh, properly. Uh, and maybe I was doing it a bit better professionally. Is to go at your own pace and you know start from where you are today and work on it and be consistent. We've got a great episode here with Dr. Marco Altini. This is one that I was really excited about and it did not disappoint. We covered a lot of great topics, understanding what heart rate variability is, how do you use uh, utilize it, what are the common misconceptions that people have about it, why you can't look at heart rate variability in the same way that you look at heart rate, how to look at the two together. We even got into some acute to chronic workload ratio stuff. So this is one I was fully nerding out about and one that and I'm very excited for people here because I think that heart rate variability is a measure that everyone should be using as they're tracking their training. And if you've had questions about it or if you've been curious about how to get more out of how you track heart rate variability, you're definitely going to take a lot out of this episode. So I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Run DNA podcast. I'm very excited about this episode. And I really want to introduce you to Marco. And, and before we do, I want to give you a little context about why I'm so excited to speak with Marco. Uh, we've actually never met before other than the brief introduction we did right before we hit record. But Marco is somebody that had a really big influence on my wearable technology and, and why I really dove deeper into that technology and how this relates to performance and running. So I started using his app, HRV for training. Actually, I, I ran into it at a professional conference with uh, the American Physical Therapy Association, their CSM. I was going around, I always look at the posters and I went around to a poster and it was featured as one of these posters that was there. And so immediately I downloaded it while I was staring at the poster. And then when I got home after the conference, my wife uh, was surprised the next morning when there was a light on and I was rolling over on my side, kind of measuring uh, with my finger, my heart rate variability. And that that really started it. And, you know, uh, that's how I really got experience with it. And I've continued to just really dive into understanding heart rate variability. Marco has a really amazing newsletter that he puts out on a, on a very regular basis. I'd highly recommend anybody interested in tracking physiological metrics to really follow that. I read it all the time. Your one about protocols this week was really great one. I, I enjoyed that. Um, and I, I just started doing that and it really helped me uh, understand a little bit more about what heart rate variability is. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about today here and, and do a deeper dive as we're doing our series about utilizing wearable technology. I think as we explore this heart rate variability, um, I want to uh, really get the expert opinion of this. Marco, I think, is one of the world leaders in tracking this. And I'm just really excited uh, about going into this and even some of the misconceptions around heart rate variability and how to utilize it. So we got a great episode ahead. So without further ado, uh, I'll introduce Marco. So Marco Ottini is a science and developer, mainly working at the intersection between health, technology, and performance. He holds a PhD cum laude in applied machine learning, a master's of science cum laude in computer science engineering, uh, another master's in human movement sciences and high performance coaching, which that sounds awesome. I would love to, to do those kind of studies there. Uh, he also has published over more than 50 papers and patents and is a co-founder of HRV for Training, advisor at Aura Rings, 
uh, guest lecturer at VU Amsterdam and editor for IEEE, Pervasive Computing Magazine, and is a runner himself. So even more reason that we're, we're looking to uh, speak to Marco. And I did some Strava talking, stalking and found that Marco has a race coming up. So maybe uh, welcome to the show and love. Uh, please introduce anything else that I forgot, but maybe you can even give us a little info about your race coming up, what race you're doing and, and how your training's gone and we can start off there. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I think that was, uh quite comprehensive, so no need to add much about my background. Um, yeah, I, I am a runner, a recreational runner. I have a half marathon coming up. I'm currently in Barcelona where I will be running on Sunday. Um, training has been going okay, I would say. You know, there's always something, uh, an issue here and there, some niggles and some aches. Uh, what can you do? You know, it's running, but it's okay in a good volume, good intensity, I think. Um, I'm uh, yeah looking forward to um, to try my best on Sunday. All right, very good. What's your like key workout heading into a half marathon? Because I saw you had some longer runs in there, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the key? That's workout? right. It's actually because of my let's say my main goals are a bit longer. So um, yeah. um, my main race of the year is 100 kilometers. Um, so it's. Um, Let's say I always train with that in mind. <laughs> and yeah. then I use the marathon as, um, let's say, an excuse to get as fit as possible over the longer distance, right? It's a, it's a good motivation, I think. So last year I qualified for Boston and I'm excited to go in April um, and, and run there. So since it's already February, <laughs> I've been doing some longer runs with, you know, marathon pace and things like that. And the half is uh, more of a, you know, intermediate step that is good to test fitness. Uh, but I wouldn't say I've trained with the half in mind. I've always done it with the longer distance in mind. And, and that's probably why, what, why you saw certain workouts that were like, hey, this is a bit too long for, for preparing for a half. Yeah. <laughs> You know, everyone's got their their training plans that they do, but it's uh, yeah, it looks like you'll you'll have good fitness leading into it there. So we'll be excited to follow that. And congrats on Boston. That'll that's always a fun. Is this your first Boston that you'll? Yeah, do? that's right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Very exciting. All right. Well, you'll head over to the states here, uh, and uh, maybe we'll even have more chance to connect then. So, um, sure thing. So tell me then, speaking of training, maybe as a runner and as a heart rate variability, maybe you can just quickly define heart rate variability for everyone, and then we can go into a little bit of how you use it. So, you know, can you just give us a, a basic overview for somebody that's not very familiar, they just see it on their watch once in a while, or uh, what is heart rate variability, and, and then we'll go into how to utilize it. Yeah, so when we measure heart rate variability, we do that because it is a marker of physiological stress. So it can help us understand how we are responding to the different stressors that we face. And training obviously is one of the stressors that we impose on the body as athletes of any level is uh, something we are interested in. But heart rate variability is not something that is only capturing training stress. It's a very generic marker of stress. So if we are getting sick or if we are traveling or if we are very stressed because of work or some other issues or there's some health issue, then these kind of things will be picked up by the data, which I think is actually uh, one of the most interesting things about heart rate viability because 
all stressors matter, right? So our right. ability to adapt to training, to perform, and to uh, do anything that we do during the day depends on how much overall stress um, we are, um, um, yeah, we are taking. So that's a useful way to try to capture our response to different stressors. When we look at it, um, let's say. Technically speaking, just to understand a bit better what we are talking about here with this heart rate variability, um, I'm sure everybody you know here is is familiar at least with heart rate, right? And measuring maybe a resting heart rate um, in the older days that was also a way to try to capture um, physiological stress in response to again training or other stressors. Heart rate variability refers to the fact that heart rate is not really constant, even when we have uh, 60 beats per minute, we don't have one beat exactly every second, there is always some variability in there. And this variability, it turns out that it's not, you know, random, it's actually due to how your body and in particular, the autonomic nervous system is responding to stress. So since we cannot really quantify this entity that we call stress, and we cannot really measure the autonomic nervous system either, we indirectly look at how we respond to stress by looking at how stress and the autonomic nervous system change heart rhythm. And therefore, when we quantify heart rate variability, we look um, at the response of the body uh, to stressors. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's something we touch a lot on too. And even our yeah, first right. episode of this podcast, we say, hey, all stress is created equal. And we focus on performance, but we also focus a lot on injuries, which is an inevitable part of the sport. And we say you kind of have to embrace that. And if you embrace that, then you'll address it quicker and, and it, they'll be less impactful. Uh, but I don't I maybe go off on a little nerdy tangent here. Right. Uh, we say um, I think heart rate variability is a great way. And I love how you put it, that it is really our body's response to stress. And do you think as somebody that's very involved in this? we'll ever be able to actually quantify the actual stress to be able, because without the ability to, to actually say what the stress is in the first place from a planning standpoint, how we respond to it and how much our body is able to, do you think with existing technology, what would have to happen for us to be able, there's so many variables, but you know, do you think we'll ever be able to quantify and say like, oh, that run was a 200 point run? there or I, we have rpe and session rp and some of those methodology now which i th think is really helpful but is is there a more sophisticated sophisticated way coming with technology yeah i would say it's very complex there are so many different aspects of it right if we think about even just running um we have many ways to quantify stress but for example we are actually not looking at any of the things that happen maybe at a muscular level or mm -hmm. you know at our tendons and ligaments and all the things that actually eventually break or overuse injuries and, and all of these sort of things. Um, we just don't have a way to, to track, for example, how the cumulative effect of all the workouts is impacting them. If a specific session is leaving us more damaged than another, um, we do that subjectively, of course, so we feel soreness and we know also how hard the session was, but I think quantifying these aspects, um, it's, a, it's, it's very, very complex. Um, we try to simplify things a lot. Sometimes we look at, again, subjective metrics, or we can look at our 
heart rate or at other things that we can measure, like maybe lactate or other markers of, um, we could call it our intensity or our response, at least to a certain external training load. Um, but, you know, all the pieces can be important and can, in a way, give us insights or guide us. Um, but measuring what we call stress, well, what is even <laughs> what we call stress, it's, I think it's uh, it's going to be very hard. Um, one thing I want to add is that I think what is important to um, understand when we talk about certain aspects that we measure, like heart rate variability, yeah. that we typically measure a bit after we have... Um, had a stressor, for example, training, right? The idea is that we measure, for example, first thing in the morning or during the night so that a few hours have passed from when we have faced the stressors and we really look at the body's response to the stressors. So when our HRV is, let's say, good, normal, within our normal range, something maybe later we can try to define, but still, let's say when we have a positive response, it does not mean that we did not have a stressor. It means that we responded well to that stressor. I think that sometimes can be a bit confusing because maybe we train hard and then we expect our HRV to be suppressed the day after. Mm-hmm. But actually, if, because you know, again, a low HRV indicates higher stress, right? So we would expect that uh, sometimes, but that is not really the case if we have applied a stimulus uh, that is adequate to our current fitness. So even if it is a hard session, and yes, our physiology will be impaired for a bit, but that is typically a short time period, a couple of hours maybe, and then things should be back to normal. So when we measure, we should always see that our HRV is within normal range because it does not show us the stress that we imposed, but it shows us the response of the body. So if we responded well, our HRV should not be suppressed. If it is suppressed, actually, we should be a bit more concerned maybe, and we can take that information to adjust our training because maybe we overdid it or maybe there are other stressors that are there that are messing with our recovery, let's say, or our ability to renormalize and that maybe we should also try to adjust if possible. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's something, an analogy that I used early on when I first started learning about heart rate variability because people were often confused by the fact that you want more variability. That's seemingly (laughs) counter. Intuitive, right? Um, but I, I gave an analogy, and I'd love to hear if you have any other ways of explaining this, or maybe even some corrections of this, because this was kind of early on in my career of saying this that the variability is good because imagine running up a hill. If you're running up a hill, you would want your heart rate to respond quickly and meet the increased demand of what you're doing. So you need to have quick, high variability. Whereas then when you start running downhill, you don't need your heart rate to still be at a very high level producing more output because that would be more mechanical work being done. So the variability does allow for us to have that option to meet the demands of our current tasks that we're doing. So I don't know if you have any other ways that you explain the variability aspect that are helpful for people to understand why like variability is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree that it's uh, really counterintuitive and um, not so obvious. I would say that, um, you know, even on, uh, um, let's say, higher resolutions, so every every second or minute that we are doing something, right, our body is always continuously adjusting to the different things. Even if I now stand up, uh, you know, my uh, body requires different resources uh, to be allocated differently. Again, blood needs to be pulled here and there and oxygen brought to the muscles that I'm going to be using and things like that. Um, and similarly, maybe I'm, you know, I'm talking and having a conversation and that maybe my 
um, say my system is uh, is not the same as if I was just sitting here by myself um, doing some work. So there's different demands, and the body adapts all the time. And so, if we were, if our heart rate was always perfectly constant, it would mean that basically we are not able to do anything different because we cannot adapt and adjust to the demands um, that we have continuously in life. So this variability allows us to do that. Um, yeah. Which is again very similar to your to your example. I think we can try to think a bit uh, in those terms um, about yeah how physiology is, is always changing in a way that it allows us to meet the demands that are uh, yeah required based on the different stressors and things that we do. So as a runner, then maybe you can give us an example of how you utilize it yourself and what things can it influence? How do you track it? How often do you track it? You know, what what's the minimum that you need to do to to really understand with it there? And what's the all in for an expert like yourself that lives and breathes this? Like, what can you do? So what's that range of things of how to use heart rate variability for the more novice user? What we're calling our like stage one, stage two wearable user versus our stage three stage four, which, you know, they're first thing in the morning, they're checking their every metric that is possible there. Yeah, yeah, I try to think to keep, to keep um, everything quite simple, actually. So in terms of the measurements, uh, you know, I developed the HRV for training up about 10 years ago, and I've always been using that to measure my physiology first thing in the morning. So now that there are different wearables and things, um, I use also other technologies, um, well, I would say, first of all, because I'm just curious about this kind of things, right? It is partially my work and curiosity. So I'm, I'm interested in seeing the data. In some cases, it's not necessarily that I'm doing anything with it in terms of making changes or things like that, at least in the short term. But I might be, you know, learning something over the longer run. Um, but yeah, so I would say a morning measurement of resting physiology gives me resting heart rate, resting heart rate variability. Once we start collecting data, where we say, we need at least a couple of weeks of data to understand what is our normal range. This is important to understand because for heart rate variability, differently from maybe other markers that people might be using, there isn't really a frame of reference for us to use. So if we take a measurement, we haven't really learned anything. <laughs> it's not that we can say, okay, this is good, this is bad, uh, you know, this is a day that you can do this, you should do that. We haven't learned anything. So we need to collect data for a couple of weeks, at least a few days to start understanding what is our normal range, but ideally a few weeks. Uh, this is what the app does also automatically, right? It will create a normal range using always the past two months of data, keeping that current because there is also seasonality in the data, right? Things in summer and winter might be different. So we need to keep updating this normal range and cannot be stuck with the first measurements you took. So this is, let's say, a continuous process that the software needs to do. And once we have this normal range, then we can really start to understand a bit better when we have a deviation from our normal that is meaningful because there is always variability also in the data on a day-to-day -day basis, right? It's not that our heart rate variability in the morning is always the same. Some days is a bit higher, some days is a bit lower, and we don't want to read too much into it. Many of these changes do not mean anything. It's just, again, normal day-to-day -day variability. Once we have a suppression, for example, that is outside of our normal range that typically indicates that there is higher stress on the body. And that is an information we can try to use. For example, if we have scheduled a high intensity workout and our HRV is already suppressed, 
then it might not be the best time to do that high intensity session because the body is already stressed and it might not respond the way we want to that stimulus. So it might be a good idea to do it another time. That is what the HRV guided studies uh, look into in the scientific literature. Maybe later we can elaborate a bit on this, but this is just the basics of how it works. And personally, as I've used it for so long, I would say the main insights maybe have not been these small um, day-to-day variations, but it's been really looking at the data over the months and sometimes the years to understand in which periods maybe uh, my HIV was suppressed for very long periods of times, what was causing it. Um, I find it actually quite um, interesting and fascinating that But at the same time, obvious, I would say that for me, as for many people that got into HRV uh, and try to start to measure these things because they have an interest due to training, they actually Mm -hmm. learned that it's not training that is stressing them out, that is causing, you know, the largest variations, that is causing chronic suppressions as opposed to just a daily suppression because maybe you did a very hard session. But, you know, when things, let's say, go wrong for longer periods of time, um, typically, other stressors for me has always been mostly work-related, right? So as work is what I do more than training, right, unfortunately. So that is the big stressor. And that when, when that doesn't go well or I'm really concerned or worried about the things, uh, you know, I'm doing and the business and, you know, over the years or sort of things can happen, that is really something that I see in the data in terms of a chronic change. Um, and I think... Then over time, you know, we learn also to try to make some adjustments maybe in our lives so that we can um, avoid some of these situations. But again, to get there, um, it takes, I would say, a long time um, collecting the data, looking at the data, not necessarily being too eager to implement changes, then trying to understand first how the different things you do impact your physiology and see what we can learn from that. When I, it's really interesting and I'm, I'm glad you brought up the point of like the time that was actually going to be one of my questions. Like how long should a baseline be, right? And some of your devices will say your seven day is X and that can be interesting, but it still doesn't give you the perspective of well, what is a two month, like you're talking about really to establish it. When I'm working with athletes from recreational to professional runners, a lot of times I encourage them to keep a little bit of a journal as well as when they're doing this to understand what those numbers are. For me personally, I've learned that when I'm below a certain value, just from journaling and trying to go into it with an open mindset, that if I'm below a certain number, my performance is not as good on those days. And I know that that number is 47 for my heart rate variability. Like when I measure a 47, I know that eh, it's probably a good day to take it light and, and easy for that day where when I'm in the 50s and I range up to 62 and that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to have a great performance when I'm 62, but I know when I'm 47 that I'm not going to do great. And I think that there's every person is so unique and you've spoke to this uh, on other po- interviews you've done and I've heard that that, you know, there's people have an individual norm. There is some normative data a little bit. Hey, you know, you should be around this number. Um, But I think it's really important that people keep track for that baseline period of 
did I have a good performance day? What does that number mean for me specifically? They might be, somebody might be more or less sensitive to some of these changes in stress with it there. So I guess I would ask you as a follow-up to what you were just saying, um, and this might be a, a little bit of a softball for HRV for training app, but like, how do you keep track of that baseline to understand those trends? Because it can be hard in the moment when we are, most of us are professionals in something other than our sport. So how do you keep track of like, what is that baseline and how is it changing? And what are your trends season to season, year to year? Is there a simple way to keep track of those things to make sure that people understand when they are seeing significant changes in their baseline, whether that's due to age, lack of fitness, work stress, life stress, those types of things? Yeah, yeah. So in the software, um, I think we we try to make it as simple as possible to also add context, right? As you were saying, related to journaling, I think it's key that we have ways to gather as much context as possible around the data, because otherwise it's very difficult when we look at it later on to understand what was happening, right? So in the app, for example, you take your measurements and then there's a questionnaire where you fill in things subjectively. Um, some other things related to, um, you know, your behavior or current lifestyle, or if you're traveling or if you had alcohol or if you're sick or these kind of things, I think it's all context for you to annotate. And then when you look back to understand at least acutely what could have been triggering certain changes. And then for the longer term view, I think um, looking at this normal value range that changes over time, um, as it is always updated, I think it is really key to understand when we have um, changes from our normal that are associated typically to important stressors, chronic stressors maybe, and things that might um, need to be addressed. So I would say these are just the, the basic steps, you know, take your measurement and try to add some context around it. And then over the weeks and months, try to look at how things change. Um, Age-related changes are expected, but they are, let's say, are changes that happen in, in decades, right? So it's not really, I, I wouldn't say we can even um, look at them since we have this technology maybe just since the last decade, right? So the, not so much time has passed since we were able to collect HRV measurements daily in a large number of people that these things can be made obvious, but it is normal that, um, let's say there is a, there is a reduction with, as we age, even though typically the use, I think that we make these days is more in the shorter term. So daily changes or weekly changes or through the normal range, we can look at monthly changes and that's a bit how we try to assess things. Um, I would say that in the shorter terms, term is always easier to, um, find relationships between, you know, the different stressors and how we respond, right? If we uh, make it as short as possible and just think about looking at a specific stressor and looking at our HRV before and after, we can typically, typically capture these relationships in very simple ways, the way it is done in the lab. But as we look at things chronically over periods of months, it becomes very complex. So I think that's when it becomes interesting, but I think we don't know much about it. So what we, my HRV will be two, three months from now, 
um, depending on my behavior, but possibly not only my behavior is very difficult to foresee, I think, um, and those kind of things. Um, I hope we will keep learning more as more people gather more data in real life outside of the lab. And there is, um, let's say, uh, we are more likely to start to understand a bit better also what drives longer term changes which are again impacted by so many factors in life that it's very difficult to isolate the way we do when we look at things in a very short term acutely. Yeah, that's helpful too. And correct me if I'm wrong in uh, summarizing some of that. But uh, you know, I, I, that was another one of my questions I had about how age relates to it. Is this something we're going to see annually go down? But it sounds it's more like over decades. So the the decline with age is a, is a uh, not a very it's a shallow slope as opposed to a exactly. steep slope. You're seeing changes. It's most often we don't know for sure is what you're saying, but it's more likely to be related to behavioral changes or activity related. Keeping that in mind, that's not like oh, I'm just another year older. I, you know, I, I dropped 15, 20 percent. It's like no, we need to be looking at something else going on. If you're seeing, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, you know, I think um, many of these uh, of these changes. Um, depend also a lot on where we start from. I think that matters because, you know, when, when people ask me, like, I, I do not like to think about HRV as the metric that we want to change or optimize, right? There's a lot of this now, maybe because it's something that we want, we can measure. And then, you know, when something is measurable, it becomes also a target or a goal or an objective to change. And there is this, um, let's say, thinking that a higher HRV is always better, which is also something I would say questionable. Mm -hmm. um, but then much of our baseline of our value, uh, you know, like you were saying before about your normal range and I have my own, much of this, I think, is driven by our genetics, right? And part of it is, of course, also our behavior. But I think it is unrealistic for certain type of people to think that we can change our HRV. So it's actually detrimental to the task of tracking it and, and making use of it if we think about it this way. If we look at HRV thinking, hey, this is my HRV, I want it to be higher. It might never happen. And especially if we are people that already exercise regularly, have a decent sleep routine and, you know, have a decent diet. You know, if you check the main, main boxes, I would say, you know, around a healthy lifestyle, it's very unlikely that you can change your HIV with other changes that are not this one we just talked about that is, you know, the basics of a healthy life. Um, and of course, stress, work stress, right? That is always the elephant here in the room, right? There's always that person that is, hey, but I exercise and I eat well, and, you know, I'm the CEO of four companies and, uh, you know, I've, I'm on a phone, on the phone every minute of, you know, every day of the week. And it's like, okay, maybe there is something there that is driving chronic stress. But, you know, outside of the stress in our lives and these um, basic behaviors, much of it is genetic and it's not um, maybe possible to change it, um, which again does not mean that it's impossible to change because many people have room for improvement in their lives. Maybe they're not eating so well or maybe they aren't sleeping so well or maybe they are very stressed for life or maybe they haven't um, started exercising yet. So there's situations in which I think 
pretty much any parameter would improve when you take up healthy habits and, and things like that. And HRV is also one of those. But it's not that um, we can necessarily change it. So that is not how I look at it. I don't look at it in terms of absolute numbers, in terms of, hey, we track it because we want to increase it. No, we look at HRV the way we're trying to um, explain before through our examples, which is, okay, we learn what is normal from us for us. We see what stressors change it. So create maybe a deviation from our normal suppression. So which stressors create maybe systematically a negative response, and then we try maybe to adjust those stressors. So it's a feedback loop. It's a number that we look at to make small adjustments. But ideally, as long as HRV is normal and stays within our normal range, it does not need to change. Actually, stability is really what we are after here, especially if we are, again, already healthy and you know we keep stressors in, in check in our life. I think that's typically the best use of it is not to try to change it or increase it or to get anywhere else with an absolute number but to use the relative changes to learn something about stress our own stress response and maybe adjust stressors in a way that makes it even more stable over time and we don't get into these acute or chronic suppressions that might make it harder to you know do the things that we do or in the context of training to respond positively to training and to keep improving if that's something we are interested in I think it's a really valuable point for runners to understand with it uh, about the absolute number versus the trends and the trends are, are very much the important aspect of it. In contrast to something like resting heart rate, where we would expect as you seek to improve fitness, everyone would change at a different rate, but w there's going to be more of a, not necessarily linear, but a correlated relationship with resting heart rate for your fitness level. But you're not looking at resting heart rate and heart rate variability in the same light as what you're looking to see change as you're improving fitness or as you're working on training. Now, I think that's a really important point. And that's why I also think along the same lines, it's encouraged that you're not just looking at one of those numbers. And you said this earlier on, you know, when you wake up and I do the same thing, you know, some of the first thing I'm checking is not just my heart rate variability, but my resting heart rate and how that looks and to see how that is. And, uh, you know, I talked about my performance on one aspect, but even from an illness standpoint, I know when I've had two days of an elevated heart rate, over, you know, when I'm over 52 for resting heart rate for two days in a row and my heart rate variability is low, I'm actually pretty likely to get ill in the next couple of days if I don't do something. And I've learned that and those trends and understanding each number is really important, but that's going to vary by individual. And there's not a set hard, like you said, a genetic component. There's not a set everyone, when they see a 10% increase in their heart rate and a 20% reduction in heart rate variability over two days, that's not universally that everyone's going to get sick. You kind of have to learn your own patterns and it's the numbers have different response to behaviors and stimulus. So that's, that's a great point. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, as I say, both uh, resting heart rate and HRV can be informative in many different situations. Sometimes they do agree, they go in opposite direction, right? As you were saying, a higher heart rate typically corresponds to a lower HRV. This yeah. is not always the case, right? In the long term, as um, we do have a stronger 
stronger relationship between resting heart rate and cardiorespiratory fitness. As you were saying with training, right, you expect maybe heart rate over time to reduce a bit. Um, so when I, when I was doing my PhD, I did some studies actually trying to estimate cardiorespiratory fitness from a number of parameters. And you could see there that resting heart rate has a um, stronger predictive value for cardiorespiratory fitness with respect to HRV to the point that HRV is not really even particularly informative from that point of view. So it's not that your absolute HRV is indicative of your performance potential or what you can do with your running or training. It's something really useful in terms of relative changes over time, but not so much as a, an absolute value, even less than resting heart rate from that point of view. And that's that kind of leads me into the next segment I wanted to talk about a bit here around misconceptions around heart rate variability. In a different interview, I heard you state uh, that this is one that I, I feel like I've talked to runners and they always have this misconception around heart rate variability. And it, I read some previous literature that it might be even be expected that as you get closer to a race, you might see some lowering in the heart rate variability for a number of different reasons there. But what you stated, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe we can go into this a little bit more, is that your heart rate variability score is more a measure of your body's ability to adapt to the stimulus that you're about to do than it is your ability to perform at a certain level there. And that you shouldn't think, because I woke up on race day at uh, 41, and when I'm below 47, I don't perform well, that that's necessarily <laughs> going to mean that that race is doomed and you should just hit snooze and call it a day there. So maybe you could elaborate on that as well as talk about like other any other misconceptions that we haven't touched base on of how you've seen people try to utilize heart rate variability, maybe not exactly the way that it's intended to, uh, because I think that there are some misconceptions out there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think um, related to um, the first point you were making, um, let's, let's separate two things first. So one is on the day-to-day -day basis, regular training, and the other one is when you're getting close to racing, because that is a bit of um, an outlier, I would say, right? It's not the typical situation. Mm -hmm. So let's start there, because maybe it's a bit simpler even in this case. So when we go through tapering and then we are you know, on race day, there's a lot of different reasons why HRV might go in directions that are the opposite of what we would expect, right? We are thinking, hey, we are training less, so it's going to be, you know, super high HRV and I'm going to be so rested and ready. But then, first of all, there are psychological components that will have an impact, right? So um, on race day, there might be um, race nerves, right? We might be uh, tense or excited or sort of things um, that would manifest as a, let's say, more active sympathetic system, right? We are ready to go. And the parasympathetic system, which is actually what is quantified by HRV, the rest and recovery side of the autonomic nervous system, would be maybe a bit suppressed and the HRV would be a bit low, but that's, again, nothing to worry about. We also need to understand that these markers are sensitive to anything, but they're not specific of anything. So all sorts of parameters and things that are happening and stressors will impact them. But from the value, we can never tell which one of the different stressors is having an impact. So it could be that you are excited, but it could also be that maybe you're sick. So that day, you know, it's uh, because I don't want to say either that 
you'll have a suppression that day and it's going to be great, right? It depends. <laughs> There's always context that is important there. But uh, when you have a low value on those days, understand that it can be perfectly normal. There is almost no literature on this, but there is one study that actually shows in Olympic uh, level athletes and the ones that had the lowest HRV on race day won the most medals or had the best results, right? So again, it's an outlier situation. Things can go in a number of ways. Um, it's normal to be more sympathetic, let's say, from that point of view, from the autonomic nervous system point of view, and more excited and ready to go and to and for that to result in a suppression in HRV. So nothing to worry about if that stresses you out, because that is also part of it for many people. Just don't take your measurement or take your measurement in a way that you don't see the score, right? In, in our app, there's a way to do that. So you measure, so later you can check, but then you don't see it right away. So I think there's always a way that you can, if you're interested, look at the data, but don't let it mess with your head, because that is, of course, also important. But physiologically speaking, it's not necessarily bad. Now, if we go back to the routine, the day-to-day, -day, the training, there, um, I think we go back to what we were discussing in terms of what we look at is the response of the body. It's not about applying or not applying stress. It's about how did we respond. So when we have a low HRV, typically we are some way under stress that we have not responded well to. It does not mean that we cannot do things, right? If we are very stressed and we still need to do our work, we will do our work. And physically it is the same. If we need to do a workout, we can do a workout. But that is probably not something that will lead to the adaptation we are seeking. So it's more about how we can further assimilate the stimulus that we are providing to the body as opposed to what we can or cannot do. We can typically, again, unless we are sick, typically we can do things if there's more stress on the body and they shall be suppressed. But the whole point is that timing in which we apply the stressor also matters. It's not just about you know the training plan that we have and the our sessions that we have. It's also about when we do it. And we see that from, again, the HRV guided studies. So in these studies, typically you have people split into two groups and one group is reducing intensity when they have a suppressed HRV. Because the idea again is that timing matters and maybe that moment is not an ideal moment to add additional stress. Because even if the athletes could execute the session, the idea is again that they would not respond positively to that stimulus. And so it's basically a wasted session, right? So they're not then improving. Now, when we do these studies, in the vast majority of these studies, at the end of the study, the group that was guided by HRV will end up doing a few sessions, um, skipping a few sessions, a few hard sessions, because the HRV was suppressed. The other group will do them anyway. And then the performance tests would show either exactly the same performance or improved performance for the group that actually skipped the hard sessions on the low HRV days, which again shows us that when we apply the stimulus matters and maybe applying it when the body is already under stress as in the sense of uh, having actually responded poorly to stress. So a low HRV because we were not able to bounce back and something is still working the system, then maybe that is not a good time to, to push. Uh, and again, we could 
which is good to know because if we have a race, then again, we don't worry about it because we know we can perform. But then, you know, after the race, we will have our, our off time or a couple of days that, you know, we used to get back to it. And it is just going to be, again, a bit of an outlier, a different situation. It's not the day-to-day, the training. As we build up towards month of regular training, maybe it's actually a better idea to um, switch things a bit sometimes if we have a situation in which physiology shows that there is higher stress and a poor response. Um, I will add just one thing here. In the past, this was done very acutely. So if you have a suppression today, you would implement a change, a reduced training intensity. Mm. In the more recent studies, we are a bit less reactive. So we look at the baseline with respect to the normal range, which means that we look at our seven days moving average. So basically the weekly average with respect to these two months or months that we discussed before that defines our normal. So only when this weekly average is below the normal range, we make a change. And to do, uh, basically to get there, we need a couple of suppressions. Right? This is what it means. Basically, this change is not that with a single suppression we implement a change, but for a baseline or a weekly average to be below normal range, you need a couple of bad days. right? So it, it's something that captures, in a way, stronger suppressions and more chronic stressors. So you're not overly reactive and changing things every time you have a suppression in HRV, which was maybe just, you know, you had a heavy dinner yesterday, but you wait a couple of days because maybe things bounce back quickly and then you keep your training plan as it is. But then if the suppressions continue three or four days and then your weekly baseline is also suppressed, then maybe it's uh, it's a good time to make a change. So that's a bit how the HRV guided training works and, and the results that they've shown. That's an interesting kind of update of how the studies have changed. It sounds very similar to like acute to chronic workload ratios. If you're familiar there, for the audience that isn't, it's it's looking at a trailing seven days uh, estimated stress compared to your chronic stress over the preceding four weeks. And it takes the average of the past seven days and compares it to the average of the preceding four weeks. And if it's too high, then there's a chance that you're susceptible to injuries. And it sounds like the uh, literature around heart rate variability is looking to utilize it in the same type of capacity where any one day maybe isn't as relevant as what's the last week look like. And if we're seeing more of an acute stress being over a week period as opposed to a day period, that'll better give a indication if the training needs to be modified or not, which is, Interesting that it's it's going that way, similar to how we use session RPE and acute to chronic workload ratios there. That's right. That's right. Actually, we did a study, and now that you remind me, uh, some years ago, it was a very small study, but it was quite interesting because it was putting together the chronic and acute um, training load ratio, and then also HRV. Um, basically, what was shown is that when the acute load is quite high, so the ratio is basically pointing to potentially higher injury risk, the people that would actually be at higher injury risk were the ones that had also a suppression in HRV at the same time. Mm-hmm. While the ones that had a stable or good HRV, you know, uh, during the higher acute load phases, they were still 
less prone to injury. So I think that also says something as the acute and chronic load um, ratio typically is looking at sometimes even just at the external load, right? Still, mm-hmm. it's very right. meaningful because obviously the work that we do matters. Um, but then if we combine that with our body's response to that work, for example, using HRV, I think the two can maybe be even more informative um, about situations in which maybe we really need to slow down a bit or not. That's really interesting because our in the RenDNA app, we track acute to chronic workload ratios, uh, you know, to hook up with wearable devices. And that's one of my metrics that I look at every morning as well is that acute to chronic. And uh, it, it is interesting to see maybe there is a more of a marriage of the two variables as opposed to looking at them independently. I haven't I, I look at them each each day, but um, I've kind of looked at them not as much together as in isolation. And that's, uh, so I want to read this study. Uh, looking at that there, that's that's very interesting. And j- another point to what you were saying earlier too, when we talk about overtraining, sometimes we also look at that where overtraining might not actually be the right word. It might be underprepared or under-recovered is more of a indication of what's actually happening when overtraining injuries happen there. It's it's just the training that you did, your body wasn't ready for it, or you didn't give yourself enough time to recover from it there. So with what you were saying earlier, even, I don't know if I'm thinking about this the right way, but when you say that the body is not prepared or is not going to get the same stimulus response, is it that because you're entering into it, no matter how long you recover, you're not going to get the same adaptation? Or is it that you can get the same adaptation, but it's going to take a longer time? And is that a different way of thinking about using heart rate variability to say, you can go and do the workout on this day, but you might need to take a rest day tomorrow to get the benefits out of it. Or is it the situation, no, no matter what you do, you're just not gonna really get the benefits of your body's depleted and you won't even initiate that response. I don't know if that literature exists or if I'm thinking about it the right way, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, on no, I think, um, I think you're thinking about a great study to do because there is yeah. definitely no literature there. Um, and yeah, so from, from what we have now, I would say, that it's probably ideal not to do the session regardless of what you do later because your body's already under a lot of stress and maybe you will have actually to take that additional rest even if you didn't want to just because you might be unable to do more um that we don't really know so just speculations um yeah i think what we know from from other studies that look at um the impact of different workouts on autonomic nervous system activity is that there are things that we can modulate and typically that would be intensity while duration we might leave it as it is even if our HIV is suppressed. Um, This comes from some studies that uh, Steven Seiler did um, a long time ago actually some of the earlier studies using HRV that I think were really interesting because he would look at your HRV before and after training, and he would look at the disruption in HRV and your resting heart rate with trainings of different intensities. For example, if you go for an easier run below the you know first lactate threshold, for example, you would see that your HRV basically is not even touched by the session, right? It's exactly the same after the workout and before the workout. Yeah. While if you 
go for a harder session that could be you know just between thresholds or even higher intensity above the second threshold if we use that uh, frame of reference then that would cause um, an impairment let's say in autonomic nervous system and that would require quite some time to recover but then if you double the time that you train for the low intensity session it would also not impact your recovery so I think that's quite interesting because that is the reason why we modulate intensity and not duration necessarily, because it's really intensity that is causing the issues. So the, let's say, autonomic imbalance or suppression, while the duration did not impact it. So, you know, if you have your easy run that is two hours and your HIV is suppressed, typically it's totally fine as long as you do take it easy and, you know, got low heart rate and things like that. Um, while the harder session, maybe it's better to do it another day. And obviously, there must be a point where even duration, you know, at a certain point is going to be too much. And that is certainly individual dependent. But I think the, the key point to understand and then to adapt for our own training based on our history and, and things that we do and our goals is that intensity is the first thing that we should try to modulate because that is going to have the biggest impact on our recovery from the autonomic nervous system point of view. While duration, I think we have a bit more freedom and it's always fine to, I would say, go for very low intensity, longer uh, exercise uh, as a form also of recovery in these cases. It's really helpful for people trying to understand how to use this variable and yeah. what modifications they should make, that duration is normally okay. Intensity is really a dangerous one, which we know for many aspects, intensity is really the most dangerous aspect of it there. I'd, I'd be curious, I don't know if there's literature even to go more specific to say, well, the time at intensity, like, is there a certain threshold where if you had a 10 by 800 meter workout planned and, you know, you don't really have time to do that later in the week, but you want to get that done, if you adjust that to four by 800, is it better to do a reduced amount of time or would it add the intensity or do you keep the intensity the same and you do the 800s at your specific pace, you do less duration or you say, I'm going to do these 800 meters slower, but I'm still going to do 10 of them. But instead of doing them at mile pace, I'm going to do them at half marathon pace. Um, so I know we're getting into the weeds there now, but mm -hmm. that, um, I don't know if that literature exists or again, I think we're already piling up some studies that we could do here, but yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. I think yeah. that's something that it's easier for people also to experiment with, right? You could yeah. use, uh, you know, a polar strap and an HRV logging up, and then you can measure before and after and then see what is the impact of the different sessions that you do that can help you also to understand if the low intensity work is really low intensity. And then if yeah. you do the hard intensity, maybe you can play around with, you know, small variations as you, as you were mentioning, half of the session, harder or slower pace and things like that and see what is the outcome for you and your current fitness. I think there's, uh, yeah, there's room for, for doing that also at the individual level and, and to learn from that. Um, while maybe the the previous ideas require more of a structured study. Yes. Yeah. All right. We're already we're lining up some studies here. <laughs> I like it. Well, um, it's great. And and I like your suggestion of hey, you know, learn for yourself and measure heart rate variability. And it sounds like heart rate variability is sensitive enough that you can measure it before and after a workout to really see how 
much stress was on the body there, um, which is interesting. I don't know. Maybe there we're we're figuring out a way that we can quantify uh, the the trade and take all those internal and external loads and and quantify it there. That might be an interesting way to look at it. But um, well, I feel like we could probably keep going on a lot about these <laughs> things. I, I uh, we're we're already going a little over than we planned here. But the great conversation. We might need a part two on this here or a follow up. But um, before, you know, I, I really appreciate all your insights and things. I just always like to ask before we go from, you know, high performers like yourself, I always am curious, just, uh, you know, anything, what's the, like a tip or a trick or something you use or something you've read recently that just helps you? I mean, you're obviously just even more so now having a chance to talk to you and not just read your newsletter. I just see how much of an expert you are at this stuff. So if you have any tips or tricks for people that are, you know, fellow type A high performers or things that are, that's your secret, I'd love you to share that before we kind of wrap up there. I would say something I, um, I learned very late in training. It costed me so many years before I learned to actually train. Uh, properly, uh, and maybe I was doing it a bit better professionally. Is to go at your own pace, and you know, start from where you are today and work on it, and be consistent, and the results will happen. Like if you, if you think, if you do today what you, if you start at the, you know, at the pace or at the looking at the objectives that you want to achieve in in the future and, and you behave today as if that was where you are at today. I think it's a recipe for disaster and for stalling um, also. It does not mean that you will not be busy, but maybe you will not really move forward. So I think embrace where you are right now and work on it consistently. And I think that can lead to, to good results professionally and uh, athletically. <laughs> That's Great advice. Yeah, there's lots of the, you know, I've heard like gap and gain, like look at where you've come from, not where you have to go. And that's helpful. And, uh, you know, a little consistent progress goes a long way with that. So there's lots of, it sounds like a lot of the Atomic Habits book uh, with James <laughs> out of that too. So um, awesome. Well, um, really appreciate it. Um, Dr. Marco Altino here again. And what are ways that people can get a hold of you or find out more? How can they follow your newsletter like I do? Um, you know, if the audience enjoy this, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, I would say these days uh, through Substack, that's probably best. That's where I write the most. So um, you can just look up my name and Substack and you will find I have a personal newsletter and one for HRB for training, but they're both on the same topics, typically other variability, wearables and things like that. Um, yeah. I use quite a bit also Twitter or X, um, okay. but yeah, the writing is, is mostly on Substack also because Twitter does not let me share it anymore. So that is a bit of a problem. <laughs> Well, we'll try to link to that in the show notes. We'll make sure right. you have a, your website, actually, your personal website is great with a lot of, if you want to hear more interviews and find more resources, That's right. yeah. um, that was something that I know in, in prep for this, I, I uh, yeah. was learning a lot myself, even I was running yesterday, uh, watching some of your previous interviews. So it was great, but um, really appreciate you being on. Thank you again. Um, and I, I, Hopefully, we'll have an opportunity to have some more updates or an update on these things or another conversation in the future, but appreciate your time. For sure. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Like what you hear? Leave a review of the show wherever you listen, and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. 
Run DNA helps runners and running specialists through education and technology to identify each runner's unique injury profile to avoid setbacks and maximize results. The Run DNA podcast is produced by Ace Running LLC. The Run DNA podcast is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can occur. Always seek the guidance of qualified medical professionals before making healthcare decisions. Find us online at rundna.com.